You're listening to highlights from the Creative Processes interview with Academy Award-nominated cinematographer Florian Hofmeister. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. What starts off this whole mystery is that there's these six men from an Alaskan research station that go missing. They're studying. It's just like a cure for everything. We can have longevity, live forever. But the more questions raised by that is, is a trade-off. There's environmental degradation. Do you risk killing our planet for the possibility that you can live forever? It, it's a, a strange question. It is. Yeah. I mean, that those are the, the themes of our time, isn't it? How much we can do almost, we feel we can do anything. At the same time, we still don't know why we're here and we don't know where we're going, that's for sure. And that probably won't change for a while. And I mean, it's on a, on a very different level, I can say something to that topic probably most interesting is Iceland itself is a very, a very archaic place because of the landscape. Archaic maybe also in terms of the, the, the settlement. Uh, uh, a thousand years ago and people came in little boats and the entire Viking idea. But it's also very fast forward because they have, the energy production is geothermal. And I know that uh, Mary Jo Winkler as a producer is very engaged in sustainability and film production, as are the big studios in Hollywood. Everybody's trying to see what can we do. And we all had hybrid or electric cars and you can charge your battery and it's uh, with zero zero two because it's geothermal. So it was an interesting experience to be in that, in a place that feels archaic on the one hand, but then really fast forward on another because... They just generate most of the energy by using the geothermal energy that they is being provided by the hot springs. And I think the production managed to really get a very favorable balance because there is actually people that will sit down and calculate how much CO2 did we omit in the course of the production. And because we were producing in Iceland, you could reduce the footprint to almost nil. And when we were shooting it, I sometimes thought the beauty about collaboration between a director and a cinematographer and a production designer and all these key people is that I am more and more convinced of this the conscious happening and there's also the subconscious happening. And I think Lisa Lopez, she brought a lot of her Mexican sensibility, obviously, to the piece. And she has a very dark humor. And she said, well, I don't know if you can say it generally about Mexicans, but I think it has been quoted in the past from other Mexican directors. They, they laugh because pain and struggle and life are so close connected in Mexican culture. You know, they, the country is having all these big wars about drugs. There's so much violence. And yet they are such beautifully humorous people, at least the ones that I've met, and especially Isa. She's a beautiful person. So I think it's beautiful that you say there's a theme of, it almost felt like a Mexican film because it, to me, it, the same thing happened. So, you know, the, the cacophony of color, the way that the sets were designed, I think that it played a lot into the cinema that takes place south of the U.S. So what I think they have done in the past in season two and three and then now in four is it's regarded an anthology that uses the same setup. So you have at the center, you have two cops 
you know, most of them will be very exposed actors. And in essence, the, the show deals with lots of themes and not just the case at hand. So, you know, the struggle, the personal relationships between the two cops and uh, a certain degree of mysteriousness. Those, I think, are the, the trademarks that I could comment on. Obviously, I didn't write it. It was uh, a Mexican writer-director called Isa Lopez who wrote and who showrun the entire uh, series in the six parts we shot. So it, I would say it, you can regard it as an anthology that bases itself on the same principles. And in this season, it will be Jodie Foster and a slightly lesser known actress, I think that will change after this, called Kaylee Rice. That drew me to the scripts. You know, obviously they're very well crafted in the terms of genre. You know, the case proceeds, you ask yourself what's happening from episode to episode, you get more hints. So there's uh, that scene that just kind of clocks along like, you know, like a drumbeat. And that kept me very engaged on this genre level. But then there were these elements of the supernatural, the, the reappearance of some of these characters, the dead characters. If you go back and watch Tigers, I'm not afraid. Lots of these themes are part of Issa's fabric. And I thought, you know, when you work and shoot these things, obviously there is the tall tale, the genre bit, the case that you have to take care of visually. But the stuff that excites me and that became more and more centerpiece are these other themes. For example, one of the themes to me is the transient nature of life up there. You know, we're telling a story in a part of the world where, you know, constant settlement in terms of static settlement is only possible since the Industrial Revolution. Because normally the indigenous cultures were living and communicating with the land in a whole different way than what was introduced to that part of the world with its industrial exploitation. So what does it mean if we go up there and we want to work at a mine, we need to heat the workplace, we need to heat the car, we need to heat the apartment, we need electricity, and we keep the light on all the time because that the entire piece takes place in what they call the dark night, you know, when basically you'll have only two or three or in some parts, the more north you get, no sunlight at all. And it was an interesting creative decision for me um, or a creative challenge to embrace, you know, how is lighting has a whole different utility and necessity than just regular light. You know, if I come home at night here in Berlin, I might switch on a few lights and some of my decisions will, of course, be aesthetic. Because I'm a cinematographer, so I like my place to look in a certain way. Now, if you live in darkness, your relationship with lighting changes. So we had a couple of locations that were public locations. We had a big location called the Ice Ring with the police station. And I kind of figured, and actually I then experienced myself, if you live in darkness, you tend to overlight. So you'll switch on every light there because you're literally craving light and you don't want your workspace during the day to be moody and dark. So obviously, if you take the genre as a starting point, moody lighting is very old woke. You know, you would say, oh, it's a dark story, so we'll go dark. But I thought, no, actually, I can't go dark all the time because people live differently. In Alaska, they keep their cars running because in the fear of having the engine freeze. So if you go to the supermarket and it's minus 20, you'll keep your car running whilst you're inside because if you switch the car off, the engine might freeze and you can't restart it. So, you know, there's a whole different way to deal with what we take very commonly as the achievements of our industrialized living environments. And I wanted that to be reflected in the lighting. So when they were in the police station, when they were in the ice rink, it was really bright, basically switched everything on. Also, I felt that the piece needed, you know, when you have a regularly shot film. And I want to say one thing, I really appreciate your comment that it feels like a whole film. 
because that's how we, in, in essence, shot it, even though it's split up in these episodes. But mm -hmm. in a normal film, you have sequences that play in outside in the day, then you go. So there's a fluctuation of different visualities. And I felt that I wanted to create the same, but only with artificial light. So you needed a, a passage that was very bright. And then you go into the driving sequences when they drive out in the snow and then it's really, really dark. But I, I think you needed that just the position and the, you know, it's like music. You needed like a wave tight to be high up and then low and quiet. So the lighting wanted to have these different shapes. That was, I think I derived from the setting and from the script. What resonates with me is the, the description of feeling little because that was the other challenge. So we had established this idea of brightness and darkness. No, the other thing is when you're out there in Alaska, scale of landscape is, of course, something that would leave an imprint on you all the time and also should leave a lead imprint on the audience when they watch it. And that was technically quite an interesting challenge because we started trapping the series in summer in Iceland, which we shot for Alaska. And the first July, August, September, October, almost the first four months, it didn't get dark. It started to get dark in October because they have the endless summer. So we were prepping this and in the entire time we were walking the course, we were going out in the countryside and we were wrecking in these locations, but it's always bright. So you can see for miles. So it's a very, very impressive landscape. And we had to constantly remind ourselves, well, A, it will be dark. And B, it will be covered in snow, which will create a very different situation for lighting. Because when you light for night, if you have like a, a dark field or some darker tones, obviously the light that I will set will enlighten the characters. If you light at night in a snowfield, the first thing that will burn and catch up the light will be the snow. So it's actually the whole lighting thing outside had to be tackled differently. So we did a lot of camera tests and I think there's some really exciting footage in there where we shot right on the blink, you know, where it looks where you can still see and you get the scale and you see some of the landscape, but it's almost disappearing into blackness. And then there's some other stuff we did is we basically, some of these driving sequences when cars drive away or drive-bys, we would frame excessively big, even though you can't see anything, the car would be depicted small. So you get the sense of vastness, which that part of the world is. I thought what's beautiful about either scripts is, I think it's a deeply human urge. And ironically, the first settlement, the first people that ever arrived in Iceland, I might get this historically wrong, either they, because the Vikings obviously arrived, and stayed. But I think the very first settlers that just came temporarily were Irish monks that had lived in monasteries isolated in Ireland and built little rafts and ventured out to find places even further to isolate even further and live in solitude. So I think that is just an urge. And I think the story, Isa has put this into the script. This, this. And when you were there, I remember we shot one night we shot on a, a lake and it was frozen. And we, we normally started shooting at like two o'clock in the afternoon when it got dark around three and then we shot till like two in the morning. And we shot on this frozen lake and at the end, of course, the northern lights come up. And then we all drove back to Reykjavik. It was about a 30 minute drive. And once you've left the lake, there was a, a turn and you turn to the right and you would drive to Reykjavik. Everybody turned right. And I thought, oh no, I'm going to turn left. And then I drove for like a half an hour into absolute nothingness. And I left the car. It was three o'clock in the morning. It was minus 17 degrees. 
and it was absolutely still. I've never experienced any such stillness. I mean, it's like you can feel your atoms move or not move because it's so cold. And then the sky is full of northern lights. So I can personally totally relate to this idea. You know, you are already in a remote place, but you want to go further. And I think she really incorporated it beautifully into the script. I've never seen women's sexuality filmed that way. I thought it was so fascinating. Well, yeah, they are very empowered, especially Kaylee. And, you know, to me, that's, it's part of my own worldview. So it didn't surprise me that much. I enjoyed it. I mean, what can one say, you know, oh, that's true, actually, because... Jodie's character has this relationship as well. See, I even I, I just thought they were. I mean, it's hard to say. You cannot say it's fun to shoot. You know, I personally find them touching. I find it very touching. And obviously, as a cinematographer, you deal with a couple of things. That it's the that the feeling that the performers, the actors, are feel exposed. So you want to create an atmosphere that feels very secure. Then there's certain steps that these days with intimacy coordinators that we have now that's a certain the stage so to say is it has to be prepped in a way like all monitors are turned off everybody has to walk out who's not really shooting the scene so to create a you know even though lots of people will see it later but for the moment of creation to create a kind of a safe space so to say and i think that both jody and Kaylee, I don't know. I mean, brave is such a strange word to use because what is brave? I mean, of course, it's brave to show yourself in one way or another so vulnerable to the camera. But I think maybe, I don't know, we never talked about it. That's the other thing. You can become very focused and technical as somebody who captures this. And you don't talk about it very philosophical. So there's the bravery to expose yourself probably as an actor. But there's also maybe the liberation, like you say, to show this and to feel the empowerment. I loved shooting those scenes. You know, I think they are very visceral and very strong. There's also a tenderness still there. And there's also a sense of humor in both scenes. You know, I mean, with Jodie, you can probably say that as a spoiler, she still wears her thick socks because they don't ask everybody, you know, they lay her up. So if you take your clothes off, you might forget the odd detail. I thought that was very lovely. And then in the scene with Kaylee, there's this beautiful moment that she brushes her teeth with her lover's SpongeBob toothbrush, and then she steals it off him. And, you know, so there was, there was force, there was tenderness, but there was also humor. And I think that makes it very human. We had uh, some people from Alaska. We had a couple of indigenous producers that came before the shoot, and they were working heavily with Isa and with Mary Jo Winkler and the cast. At that point, I was absolutely engulfed in trying to get this thing technically off the ground. So I wasn't, I, I couldn't speak of those conversations. What I loved was the singing. I didn't know the, they have a very specific way of singing and the rhythmic singing where breath is a, plays a part. It's, it's been utilized a couple of times. The entire birthing sequence that we shot, those were moments that were a bit stronger where we, we really dealt with. Some of the uh, elderly came down just to see everybody, the way they treat the elderly. It's very respectful. They would always look to them to what they had to say. And you'd always wait to have them finish their sentences. So you feel there's obviously a very conscious connection towards tradition that is also political because it means something, because it, it has been suppressed and it means something to maintain it. So that was, of course, palpable when we shot. But I, even in something simple, there's the hunter at the beginning, that character that reoccurs. I just loved photographing that man. There were some special people, and, and I think the entire production meant a lot to them. 
We hope you've enjoyed listening to these highlights. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, click on subscribe. Thank you for listening.